Welcome to episode 35 of the Strategic Podcast. We're going to do a little bit of a different take today. We're going to ask ourselves, well, why are we seeing such unhappiness during times of such prosperity? I think everyone would agree that, you know, we are doing fairly well on the economic side, for sure. We have uh, in North America, the U.S. is at uh, below 5% unemployment rate, which it hasn't seen in a long time. Canada is below 6%, which it has not seen for at least uh, two decades. So if we are enjoying this economic prosperity, why do we continue to see such unhappiness? And to discuss this, we've got Joe Couteau and Jeff Rowan and myself here today. Jeff, why don't we turn it over to you and uh, you know give us your thoughts so we can jump into the discussion. Sure. Well, it really is a curious thing because if you look at kind of big picture things in our lives, um, you know, there's, there is in fact less war than there's been in, in many decades. Um, we live longer and healthier than ever. Uh, fewer people suffer from, you know, from famine and drought. Um, there have been uh, significant improvements in what we call you know, social justice and social justice issues. Um, the world in general is a better, kinder, gentler place to live than it was 20, 30, 50, certainly 100 years ago. Uh, and yet we feel like everything sucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think maybe part of that is that happiness is, is relative. So we, we have a much more globally connected world now where you can see what everybody's doing. We're in everybody's business and everybody looks happier than us. They look like they're enjoying life more than us. And I'm sweating it out and I'm going to work and I'm doing this and I'm paying my bills. And, uh, and yet Joe and his, not Joe and his wife, or maybe say Bill and his wife, since Joe <laughs> is sitting here, uh, you know, they're touring, uh, the ruins in Rome and they're jetting off to, to Monaco and they're having a great time. You know. would, would we call that the Facebook effect or the Instagram effect where we get to see the best parts of people's lives and you think, well, maybe, gee, why aren't, why aren't I doing that? Absolutely. I mean, so that's, yes, absolutely. That's the social media effect, the, the comparison effect. And related to that, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'll, I'll just say re related to that, I think, is also that we've become outrage junkies. Mm -hmm. We've got this constant feed of things that you know are positioned to us. This is wrong. This is wrong. And, and all sides of the political spectrum fuel this. Uh, and we're always outraged about something. Uh, somebody's doing wrong to someone. Uh, so, I mean, there is, a, I think, a physiological element to this. Like, you know, we we hear something outrageous, and our brain fires up a, a little adrenaline. And when I'm checking Twitter 50 times a day and seeing inflammatory tweets, you know, a, a, a thousand inflammatory tweets a day, I'm getting a constant steady pump of alert and alarm. And uh, that's that's addictive. So um, we get addicted to the bad news. We get addicted to outrage. We get addicted to comparing ourselves to others uh, and don't stop and <laughs> spell the roses. Don't stop and notice that actually probably for most of us, our lives are better than, than they would have been in the past. I think you said something that was really interesting, Jeff, in terms of the things that we are worried about. We used to be worried about, as you said, wars, famine, drought, those things that on a day-to-day -day basis, we worried about them. 
in our Western society, uh, many of us now don't really have to worry about those awful, terrible, life-changing things like we did in the past. I'm, I, it kind of struck me as you were talking, Jeff, that you know, if you were a, 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 a peasant in feudal times, um, you saw the castle where the very rich, that the 1% lived. Mm -hmm. And if you had your little hovel with a little bit of a vegetable garden and, and, a, and a brook where you can get clean water nearby, you were probably pretty happy. We wouldn't be happy that way now. Or, or would we? Well, I mean, would we? Well, yeah. let, this, just okay. taking it where we're, we're, we're coming from here yeah. in terms, it's a very economic argument or discussion that we're having right now. It's not really an argument that it, if my neighbor is building a kitchen, as actually they are right now, and my kitchen isn't very modern, um, I'm unhappy about that. Think about that. I'm unhappy that I have a functional kitchen where I can cook my meals and I can store all of my goods to consume and I have water coming out of a tap, yet I'm unhappy. Why am I unhappy? It's not because I don't have, it's because I don't have enough. Yeah. And just to add one little point on that, not only are you unhappy, but you're now making a value judgment about myself. Yes. I'm not as good a person as I should be. I'm not providing this modern kitchen for my family. Yeah. yeah well, in economics, we, we call that cons conspicuous consumption. Mm -hmm. right? yes. So you have to keep up with the Joneses. You know, mm -hmm. If your neighbors are, are getting a new kitchen, well, you think, well, maybe I need to get a new kitchen as well. But I mean, overall, we are we are much better off than we were, right? So what is what is happening? And I, I and Jeff, I liked your discussion about you know outrage junkies. It's become so easy on social media to be upset about whatever it is. You know, a uh, a girl in the U.S. wears a Chinese dress to a, a prom, and social media goes crazy. It's cultural like, appropriation. Yeah, cultural appropriation. You know, yet. I don't know. I mean, I, I see, uh, I, I go into the Bay, a local department store here, and I see an, a dress which is based on Indian clothing. I don't get upset about it. I'm like, hey, that's great. You know, we, we've got influence uh, around the world. <laughs> and, you know, her intent, according to her Twitter feed, was just, you know, she, she loves the culture. She loves, she wants, she was proud of it. Uh, she's not Chinese herself, but, you know, can, can really understand and relate to it. So what's wrong with that? Why do we get outraged at those kinds of things? I think because people tell us to be, I guess there's certain, I, I, I think we have to do a whole podcast on cultural appropriation yeah. because right. I, you know, the, right. I think the, I mean, what's the difference between an homage to a culture, uh, and appropriation? I can see there are certain, you know, there are certain situations where it is clearly insulting to a culture to take a, a, a culturally identifying, um, you know, artifact, a piece, mm -hmm. a piece of the culture mm -hmm. and, you know, use it for fun and silliness and, and, and demean it. That obviously is evil and wrong. But if it's, you know, if you're appreciating the culture, you know, if you appreciate Indian cooking or Japanese cooking, if you appreciate fashion, if you appreciate the art, um, hasn't all art and all cultural expression built off of one another uh, over the millennia? Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's but, for another day. But you're, you're, it's a, it's a really good insight because why are you unhappy about that that the, uh, that woman wearing a Chinese dress right fundamentally why are you unhappy why does it bother you so much what why does it make you so um, despondent 
or angry or whatever the emotion is. You know, and I, I was thinking about, as you were talking about that, that maybe in, at least in the Western world, we, we're kind of confusing happiness with contentment. Mm -hmm. I, I think in the Western world, what happens is um, our forms of happiness are actually high intensity ones. We mm -hmm. expect uh, things like, like joy and excitement and like euphoria. Right. It may be why, you know, we're so addicted to things and not just drugs, but, you know, social media and, and things of that nature is that we equate sort of the high with being happy. Whereas in other cultures, and I, I tend to see, you know, whenever they do sort of the barometers of who are the happiest people in the world. Yes, the, it tends to be the Scandinavians, the Danes and the Norwegians and the Swedes, and they have comfortable Western societies, but they tend to be le less intent, uh, intense. They tend to be focusing more on work-life balance, for instance, mm. right? Like uh, when they take holidays, it's not like I've got a week off and then I'm back to the grind. It's like I'm off for two months, at least traditionally. So there's, I think there's an element of if you are content, you accept things. You may not necessarily have the nice kitchen, yeah. But you're you're happy enough for your 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 neighbor to do that. So I'm wondering if we're you know mixing those two things up. I think you're bang on, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it speaks to so many areas of our of our Western culture. So we're always looking for that jolt, that hit of excitement. I mean, I think most uh, Westerners, you plop them, or most North Americans, you plop them into a Scandinavian country, and they'd be bored out of their mind because they're <laughs> not getting these jolts of, of excitement. Uh, when you think about consumption, I mean, shopping, shopping is a pastime for many people. You go, you're, you know, you're looking, and people describe it like other people describe getting high. It's the excitement of buying a new pair of shoes, the excitement of buying this, the excitement of buying that. Uh, Personally, I don't, I don't see that, but I do see, you know, the jolt of, of excitement you get. So if I see the jolt of excitement from, you know, an intense political interaction or intense mm -hmm. social interaction. To me, that's that's exciting to watch. If everybody just got along, I guess that would be a good thing. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting you talk about, uh, both of you guys have talked about sort of euphoria and the jolt of excitement. I mean, there are research studies now that show that, uh, our phones have become a very addictive device. So that notification that we get or the ping that we get that there's either a new message or a text message or a Facebook update or a Twitter, you know, update from someone that we follow creates that same kind of uh, narcotic effect, which is what addicts us to our devices because we continuously want that novelty. We continuously want you know, validation, how many people are liking our, mm -hmm. our posts mm -hmm. on Facebook, and we need that kind of self-validation. <laughs> and, and that's, I, I think you guys have really hit upon something to say that, you know, we, we are, maybe we're confusing uh, euphoria with, with contentment. I think I think so, and and uh, your your example of being addicted to our devices, and I'm putting up my hand here. I'm the worst one in the room, um, but I still refuse to buy uh, electronic books, for instance. And it's it's a small little way for me to protest the lack of tactile um, interaction with something that I really love. I love to read, right? Mm -hmm. I, I love. Like what we're doing now is, is kind of a form of reading, right? It's learning and debating and stuff. Yeah. And, and so you have to find those little ways to stay in touch 
Uh, and I use the word tactile because I think we're feelers, right? As human beings, we need to feel, right? Uh -huh. And that could be good. It could be, um, you know, an intense feeling of love for somebody is great. And you can't have that if they're, you know, not there, if you're not interacting. You can look at them on the screen. You can have FaceTime with them. Right, and it's great for keeping in touch, right, Jeff, with your daughter in Japan. I'm sure you use that to great mm -hmm. effect. Um, but when she came home, wasn't that a different type of Absolutely. happiness? Absolutely, and you have to be in that moment. I want to maybe pose a question to you guys, uh, frame it a little bit differently, is um, have we lost our ability to experience awe? Uh, you, you know, Again, 10 years ago, the example of Skyping with someone in another country, it's like, wow, that would be, you know, I can see you at the same time. Uh, I, and I always think of a, a Louis C.K., the comedian Louis C.K. Mm -hmm. bit about flying in airplanes. And he says, you know, he'll be at the airport, he's a comedian, he travels all the time, and he'll be sitting in the lounge, and someone's flight is a half hour late, and the person is just going bat crazy, uh, just really angry, furious, having a complete meltdown. And he says, dude, like, you have to wait 30 minutes to sit in a device that is going to fly through the air <laughs> at right. hundreds of miles an hour. You're going to be sitting in a relatively comfortable chair. They're going to serve you food and booze. There's a bathroom. And then a couple hours later, you're going to be in a whole other place. And you're upset about 30 minutes. Like, we, we've <laughs> lost our ability to appreciate um, what we have, I guess. Maybe that's why we're dissatisfied. Well, it, it's interesting you use the word awe. It's a really interesting word. I think awe, from my context, and maybe it's just because I came from a place where we were, frankly, economic refugees to Canada. We came here because we wanted things. But in where I came from, my family came from, the idea of awe was always this very spiritual thing. Could be a religious connotation, or it could be an intense feeling. We have words in Portuguese, which is my mother tongue, uh, that we can't translate into English because they don't quite convey the awe that they, and a lot of it is frankly physical, or a physical kind of love. Um, but when you were talking about awe, I wonder if it's, it's really the measurements that we're using, mm -hmm. right? Atul, you talked yeah. about so the economic measurements, right? Yeah. If we're just using economic measurements, um, I look at my iPhone, for instance, it's a wondrous device. If you, if you had shown somebody the 1950s, an iPhone and what it could do, they would have been in awe. But if I show you my new iPhone with a couple of new bells and whistles, you say, well, that's nice. You're not in awe of it anymore, right? Because you've lost it. The materialism always says, well, I've got an iPhone. Great. What's next? Right. And so we, we've lost kind of connection. And part of this, I think, is nature. Like not, we don't spend nearly enough time in nature yeah, in, in the West. Sure. Yeah. And so a beautiful sunrise now is uh, it's delaying me getting to my office, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's an interesting point because I, I have really tried hard to, you know, get the kids and the family to kind of really focus in on those things. So when the moon looks really good I make sure I point it out to them mm -hmm. or when the sun's going down, you see the colors. I always talk to them about it like it's because it's there and it's there for everybody but we just you know we keep our heads down we're looking at our devices and we just we miss all of that so it's, it's really you have to do it deliberately now you can't just sort of appreciate the beauty that's there you're the last of the romantics yeah so you're really <laughs> I, I can't remember the last time i actually sat and watched the moon 
you know, rise, you know, blood moon or something like that. If you hear about it on social media, I'll run outside because everybody else is doing it. Well, that's right, exactly. <laughs> and you've got your camera because you're trying to get the right filter and the yeah. right shot. I will say on an, on an optimistic note, if, if we're wrapping up, I, I will say that uh, as, we've, you know, as we've been thinking about this and talking about this, I've been noticing more people enjoying the moment. And so, you know, I've just come back from four months in Florida, my first snowbird flight from winter here. <laughs> And one of our favorite things to do was go to a, a beach restaurant uh, for sunset. And the, the great thing about that is obviously the sunset is beautiful and it's over the ocean and all that nice stuff. And you sit and there's a certain amount of awe, maybe even a bit of spiritual awe. But what I really loved about it would be all the families out on the beach. And it was every night it was like a party. And it was all families and they were out there and the kids were doing their cartwheels and throwing sand at each other and laughing and giggling and chasing the waves and chasing the seagulls. Uh, you know, there was very little technology except for the buzzer that told you your table was now available. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, it's out there to be seen. The, the people who are enjoying those moments are out there to be seen. I think that there's just... We take less opportunity for it, uh, and we make ourselves unhappy by, uh, as, as you said earlier, Joe, by confusing happiness, uh, contentment, euphoria, joy, mm. excitement um, with just enjoying where we're at at the moment. Before we do wrap up, there's just two other things. One, I want to get back to this question of measurement, and then second... Mm -hmm want to talk about how that unhappiness kind of manifests itself. I mean, I, I believe that one of the manifestations of this underlying unhappiness that people have is the election of Donald Trump. Because people were mad at the system, They're, they don't believe that they are participating in the prosperous times that we have. So therefore, they're going to cast a protest vote when someone comes around and says, I will make America great again, right? So it's because I will allow you to participate in the prosperity that we're seeing across the country. And that's, that's, where, he, that's where the states turned. Those that were in the Rust Belt, right, the so-called Rust Belt, that lost jobs as a result of free trade or saw restructuring happening, weren't able to get new skills, those were the people who voted for Trump. Now, we're seeing some of that in, in Ontario specifically, there's still that populism, now we call it populism, right? But there's still that populism or undercurrent of resentment that we have prosperous times in Ontario, the lowest unemployment rate uh, in almost two decades. We are below what we think of as our natural unemployment rate in Ontario, which is around 6%, and we're at about 55 5.6% now. So we should be doing really well. Um, you know, all the measures, inflation continues to be low, to be low and um, uh, interest rates are reasonable still. You know, we're not paying like 21% uh, for mortgages as we did in the 1980s. So again, using all of those measures, we still see, from my mind, you know, because I think of things through an economic lens as well, that the unhappiness is there. And are we going to see that manifestation here in Ontario as well? Well, I, I think we we are seeing it, whether it uh, sustains itself through uh, a, an election of a Trump-lite person, as uh, one candidate is being called. It, it remains to be seen, of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you were talking about the economics of it, yes, we should be happy with our lot in life. And I encourage listeners, like, get out of Canada. Go to some place that isn't 
enjoying economic prosperity like Canada, mm -hmm. and see what the other half has, and it should or sober you up, or doesn't have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in this case, but uh, you know, I I'm not sure that this isn't a natural outcome of our our economic system that equates happiness with things. That the more you have, the more happy you should be. Not necessarily that you are. And it's, it's, we come back to the example of my neighbor having a new kitchen and I don't and therefore I'm not validated mm -hmm. as an individual, right? This is not the fault of the economic system we have here, right? It's generating prosperity. You should be happy that you have a job, that you get a raise every year and you're able to pay your outrageous amount of federal tax and all that stuff, right? Yet you're not. And, and perhaps there's something in the human psyche or the systems that we build economically that says you can never be satisfied, right? You should always be discontent. So if your house is worth $100,000, you know, here and your neighbor is $200,000, you'll never find a $100,000 house, of course. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. You will be, again, it's a lack of contentment. Not, mm -hmm. But we, we equate that with happiness. And um, it, it, I don't think happiness and our economic system go hand in hand together, although we desperately want it to. Well, as, as Captain Kirk would say on Star Trek, um, humanity's great driver is this discontentment, this hunger, this thirst for more knowledge, more experience, more... Uh, more travel, more excitement, find strange new worlds. So, uh, uh, you know, is that a good thing in humanity or not? I don't know. It's, it's led to a lot of uh, progress. But I want to go back. So I'll go back to answer Atul's original question in my usual roundabout way. First of all, I don't think Donald Trump was actually elected. I think that, uh, you know, it's study, research, uh, investigation will show that there was a, probably a fairly significant uh, influence by the Russian government on the U.S. election, if only in insidiously uh, sowing discord, uh, making taking the tone of, of discourse online down and negative and making it much more confrontational and much angrier. Uh, you know, creating this really, really negative environment. Uh, that said, yes, there absolutely has been a long-standing disaffection with politicians, and and I've seen research from around the world for over the last five, six, seven years that shows that politicians, uh, political leaders, are respected in the you know almost the single digits. It's almost friends and family who, yeah. who, who respect them. <laughs> so the they're the only ones left. The, <laughs> That's right. The stage was set for for someone like Trump, for for candidates like Trump, to come in and appeal to to that disaffection. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen as dramatically in Canada and in Ontario uh, uh, as it happened in the United States. First of all, I don't think that we're going to have as much. Uh, influence from a foreign power uh, intentionally trying to sow discord there are third parties out there that are trying yeah, to absolutely. like even they, on the right i mean there has been one on the left for mm -hmm. a long time but now there's a strong uh third party advocate for the right which is gaining uh i think i read a stat that said that the views that this uh i think it's called ontario proud that they've received on facebook or the number of members that they have is more than the three political parties combined. Right. So, well, I'm hopeful that they will have uh, that, that third parties like that who just want to kind of drop a 
hand grenade in the whole process will have less influence than an organized state-led mm. uh, campaign with uh, with almost limitless resources. But we so we, here we have a, a current campaign uh, with the vote on June seventh, where there's the evidence of massive disaffection with traditional political leadership is is out there. You could argue so you know Kathleen Wynne, most unpopular liberal leader in I don't know. Ever. Ever. Okay. Well, we've only had, uh, <laughs> you know, in the last 50 years, yeah. we've only had, uh, what, two premiers. Right. So, so okay. it's But it's still very, premier, very, so. very unpopular leader. Why is she unpopular? Uh, yeah. I don't know why she's unpopular. Another I mean, podcast, she's isn't a it? decent human <laughs> three, being, three as far <laughs> as I can tell. Um, you can yeah. argue, you know, the, the liberals are unpopular if you don't believe in investing heavily in social programs and uh, paying for it with with taxes um but so, so yeah this this the stage is set there there is a, a door open for a candidate who's going to address that historic indifference to traditional politicians but so the pendulum will swing maybe you know maybe it swings i mean the the trump pendulum is already starting to swing back in the opposite direction. If there's a Doug Ford uh, leadership, premiership, you'll see what he's all about. And Canadians will probably find out that as a politician, he's still not giving them what they want because politicians often don't. The pendulum will, will swing back, um, but I think it'll be a little nicer in Canada. That's kind of a milk toasty thing to say, but, <laughs> well, but we're Canadians. We're, gonna we're nice. See. We're going to see. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so the other one was on measurement. So we do have a lot of economic measures that we tend to look at, right? GDP growth, uh, GDP uh, versus debt. We look at the inflation rate, which we monitor unemployment rates. There's been some discussion of, of late that, you know, maybe we have the wrong measures there. Maybe we need to look at something like a happiness index or a well-being index that actually measures, well, okay, you know, perhaps our GDP is X, but, you know, really, are we as, you know, as Joe said, are we as content as we were in the past? And maybe that's an important measure that we need to start to, to discuss a little bit. The question I would have for, related to that tool is who sets the standard, right? Somebody set the standard saying GDP is the end all and be all. Mm -hmm. So, and that was sort of laissez-faire capitalism and that's the standard, right? And we're still measuring that, our society, even though it's changed, I would argue. Yeah. So who, who gets to set the sort of happiness? What is happiness, in other words? Sure. It's, it's a very broad question. And, yeah. you know, maybe we could do, a, like, another podcast on the definition of happiness. <laughs> but <it's> a... <laughs> well, but your, your point on measurement is, is important. The, I mean, measurement and economic measurement is important to the extent that it tells us how the economy is functioning, which is a you know, foundational for our society. People need to have meaningful work uh, that they're compensated for, and uh, you know, and and the circle goes round and round. This is speaks to one of my pet peeves, which is shareholder supremacy. Mm. The idea that the only thing that matters is that you maximize shareholder value seems to me a big part of having broken the system uh, because now companies, organizations, anybody that takes investor money 
can't look at the total picture of, you know, am I making my community healthy, happy? Am I making my employees healthy, happy? Am I making my consumers healthy, happy? They have to look at first and foremost, above all else, uh, by regulation, am I doing the best I can to maximize shareholder value? And so I get it. You know, shareholders put capital at risk. They deserve return. But do they deserve return above everything else in society? And I think we need to come to terms with creating a little a better balance there if we're going to uh, see a higher contentment quotient. Mm. Oh, on that note, I, you know, if we if we go back to our original question, you know, are we why are we seeing such unhappiness during times of such prosperity? I, I think that the answer that we've kind of come to is that maybe we are looking at happiness the wrong way. We're looking at it more as, as, uh, as you guys said, more as uh, jolts of joy or jolts of euphoria, that, that dopamine push that we're getting. Then we think that that is happiness and that's what we continue to require. And if we don't get that, then we feel unhappy as a result of that. Whereas what we aren't doing is comparing ourselves maybe around the world and thinking, well, you know, you know I've got kind of uh, the things that I need to kind of survive and I should be content and maybe we need to focus more a little on uh, contentment rather than on what's the instant gratification that I can get. And I think that's that's sort of where we ended up on our on mm-hmm. our question. So, any last comments before we before we wrap it up? Well, I think that um, you're bang on. First of all, too, I think you've captured it quite well. But I go back to something that Jeff said in terms of the you know the Star Trek. Uh, um, about being discontentment is actually a good thing. It drives mm. people, right? Uh, yes, but um, you know, to keep in the Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek um, <laughs> can never mode. go wrong. Can never yeah, go wrong. Right. Star Trek. Uh, there was something called the Prime Directive, right, as part of, of Star Trek, which said it's perfectly fine to go and uh, explore and seek new worlds and things of that nature. But there were certain parameters around it, things like uh, do it because you want to learn. Do it because you're going to respect cultures. And if the culture is going to be contaminated by your culture, you can't have any contact. So there was these parameters put around even that sort of discontentment that drives you mm. to make sure that your, your dis- discontentment isn't about greed. And I think that fundamentally is the problem uh, with our lack of happiness is uh, we have equated greed with good. Uh, and that's what drives social Gordon justice Gecko. movements. Right. Yes. <laughs> Greed is good. Uh, it, yeah. And you know what? It isn't. Uh, discontentment and drive is good. Greed means I'm going to push you down in order for me to get more. Mm-hmm. And nobody wins. You may think you win. Nobody's taking it with them in, in the coffin. That's kind right. of thing. And so we, I think we need to adjust our lens in terms of uh, happiness and contentment, as you said, Atul. And, um, but that's not just on an individual. I love nature. I can go off and appreciate nature. But if that's kind of like not what makes you happy, according to society, then we've got a social problem. Uh, You know, maybe something else. I mean, you know, maybe playing sports, maybe doing something that makes you happy. I think our situation has become that we've developed this kind of amusement park model for happiness. Uh, which has got to be exciting and flashing lights. And, and, uh, so yeah, I, I, I am on board with the, um, finding more personal contentment. You know, the, the life's goal is to find a moment of perfect contentment, right? Um, 
so yeah, I can only agree that uh, let's turn away from the kind of the faux hysterical happiness and find maybe what would be a more genuine happiness, which is a contentment, which is an appreciation uh, of what we've got, recognizing that we have to help everybody uh, have good, livable lives. Well, thank you for joining us for this podcast. We've had, as always, a very interesting discussion. We uh, will have uh, more information in the show notes. You can obviously contact us there. And uh, we'll see if we can find some links to that TED Talk as well as some of the other things that we refer to. I'm going to look for something on the happiness index and put that in there as well. (laughs) So take a look for that. As always, you can uh, listen to the podcast on uh, Google Play, on iTunes and Stitcher and other podcast sites as well. I'm Atul Sharma. Until next week, be well.